Welcome to the Outdoor States Podcast, a series of live conversations with the thinkers, the advocates, the businesses, and the state officials who are fueling a national movement in outdoor recreation, one state at a time. As an outdoor rec economy advocate myself in the state of Vermont, I've been having conversations with people around the country about this topic for the last several years, and and repeatedly I'm just blown away by how interesting these people are, how insightful they are, how passionate they are on this topic. So I decided to make a podcast. And yeah, I'm going to admit it's not going to be the best audio for every call. And yes, this is a little low budget and definitely a desktop publishing job. But I think what's really important here are the people that are on the phone. They have a remarkable passion, uh, incredible local perspectives, and, um, and are really willing to share what they're doing so that we can all learn from it. Today on Outdoor States, we have Hansi Johnson, the Director of Recreational Lands at the Minnesota Land Trust. He is a, he's really what I would call kind of an outdoor industry native. He's been, he's been kicking around outdoor retailer, working for outdoor brands since I think he was about two years old. And, uh, and now he has really shifted to focusing on, um, on the experience and the community more than selling a specific product. And uh, really an interesting guy doing some fantastic work in Duluth. Um, and I think this is a really cool conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, so welcome Hansi Johnson from the, the beautiful city of Duluth. Uh, Hansi, you're saying you wanted a little more snow out there. Have you guys had an early start to the winter so far? Yeah, you know, we've uh, we've actually had an early start as far as cold temperatures are concerned, but we're we're definitely behind as far as moisture is concerned. So really, yeah. While it's winter and we have lots of ice, we don't necessarily have lots of snow. So we're we're anxiously awaiting our, our new Nordic Center to start making snow for the first time ever. Wow. So that that's the the big new thing in Duluth, Minnesota is Nordic snowmaking. <laughs> that's fantastic. So you know, just as a you know, we'll make the assumption that a lot of people, including myself, have never been to Duluth, but have thought about it. Give me a picture of, of what Duluth is like, just sort of from a, from a, a city perspective and, you know, the landscape there. And what, what are we looking at? Yeah, it's actually, it's interesting. A lot of people who do even know where Duluth is just sort of assume that it's just a lake. You know, it's a city on Lake Superior. And when you kind of dig into it a little deeper... It's actually a city on a river, and it's uh, the St. Louis River. That's the main, I think it's the biggest watershed on the U.S. side into Lake Superior. So it kind of comes down from the north and east of, of the city, and that's what actually creates the harbor. So Duluth is on both Lake Superior and this river. And uh, the interesting thing about that is both those different types of waterways have created and carved out sort of a big basin with like a really a lot more kind of relief and terrain than most people would associate with Minnesota. We always get that classic, you must live in the cornfield flatlands. Right. And um, we actually have, you know, not a huge amount of relief, but about, you know, roughly over a thousand feet from lake level to the top of the, you know, kind of the, what we call the hill. Right. And um, so between the river and the lake, it's a, it's a lot of relief, but, you know, it's also, the river is actually the largest freshwater estuary in the world. And that's kind of an interesting term. The fact that the way the river interacts with the lake is there's actually times when the lake will turn around and have a small tide that actually forces the river to, to reverse direction. Wow. And uh, so you have this large 
kind of slow moving, moving sluggish thing, which at one point had the world's largest wild rice bed. And so the really? reason I talk about that is because you can imagine back, you know, in the before European settlement, when the Anishinaabe were living here, it was literally kind of the land of milk and honey. You just had this huge, you know, kind of pile of biomass there that was attracting all the critters and all the fish. So it was just a really fertile, vibrant place. And that's also what, you know, eventually attracted the Europeans and uh, European settlement. And, you know, the river not only sustained the Anishinaabe, it sustained the settlers that came as well. And um, eventually became a very industrialized place because it was also where um, the iron ore from the Iron Range up in northern Minnesota was coming down and being turned into steel and into ships as well. And, um, you know, World War One and World War Two were just huge industrial moments for this for this place. And that all sort of bled up to the 1970s where we just had a massive collapse and a lot of that industry left. So you saw this, you know, very rich, vibrant place grow really big and then all of a sudden collapse. And uh, literally since that point, Duluth has been struggling to kind of get back on its feet. Yeah, like a, like a few other places, particularly in that upper Midwest, really trying to find its way a little bit. And, you know, I, I think before we get too far down the outdoor recreation path, are you are you originally from Duluth? No, I'm originally from Minnesota, but I've lived in Duluth on and off since 1989. Right, right, and um, you know, and so you were you were there on and off, um, but you started in the outdoor industry, or I don't even know. You probably started, you know, well before the outdoor industry. You were an outdoor an outdoor kid growing up in Minnesota. Found your way into the outdoor industry. Worked for a bunch of brands. Actually, I was checking out your LinkedIn profile and was. It was just very funny to see rainy bindings on there and Tua, which yeah. were which were guys. <laughs> yeah. I actually had like I believe I bought the first pair of rainy super loops from Russ Rainey at like the ski swap in Jackson a million years ago. That's awesome. Oh yeah, God. it was the surgical tubing one. Um, really, something else. I keep wondering. I keep wondering what he's up to these days. <laughs> I'm yeah. He's 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 happy and skiing somewhere. Um, but so, you know, your sort of re-entry or your, I mean, do you think of it as a second career when you started getting into IMBA and, and really tackling recreation as a, uh, as an action rather than a product? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. You know, like I, I like to like kind of sometimes say I, I was, you know, I never had a chance as far as the outdoor industry is concerned because I grew up just down the block from the folks that owned Winona Canoe and founded Winona Canoe. So I started working in the outdoor industry and I was about like 12 years old <laughs> and, uh, and, and worked for them, you know, all through high school, both in, you know, all sorts of different jobs. And then, you know, worked with their retailers all through college. And that led me to, you know, sales and marketing and working in the industry as a rep. Um, but yeah, you kind of nailed it. You know, from there, it was like, I had this epiphany at one point when I was working with Patagonia, actually, where it was like, I was, I kept, I was very inspired by to sort of the activism and also the advocacy that Patagonia was really kind of pushing along with their brand and their product. But I had this epiphany where I was like, man, I really like selling that part. You know, I like selling the stuff that doesn't involve stuff. It it involves the idea of actually going outside and, and started to learn more about advocacy while I was still in the industry. And then saw these other organizations like IMBA and started to get more interested in, you know, my own local organizations and how I can start to volunteer as a club member 
And then eventually I had an opportunity to work in advocacy. And so, yeah, you're right. I feel like it is a second career, but at the same time, it, it feels like it dovetails, you know, perfectly with what I was doing before. Would you, it's really interesting, you know, I mean, um, you know, you're obviously, you know, a, a photographer and a storyteller and, you know, your blog, Universal Clister. I don't know if you're still posting on that, but that was certainly entertaining yeah. for a long while. And um, how... How would you, how do you define advocacy? And, and, and the reason I ask that is because I, I wonder, I mean, is it just the other side of a marketing coin? I mean, um, or, or do you feel like it's a different, a different thing altogether? That's a, you know, it's a really good question. I think you, you asked me on one day, I'll give you a different answer. And right. <laughs> sure. Today, I'll give you this one. But um, I think that to me, what advocacy is, is really, you know, it's, there's a difference between activism and advocacy. I think that advocacy itself is really um, kind of, you know, promoting and marketing in some way the ideas that you're talking about, but doing it in a way where you're working a lot with other kind of thought leaders and gatekeepers and politicians and community members to start, you know, slowly but surely introducing an idea that could be beneficial to the community as a whole. And so I think that's a little bit different than an activism where, you know, to me, a lot of times with activism, I feel like that's when your back's up against the wall and there is no more conversation. It's like right. you're standing up and you're just saying, this has to change. Whereas with advocacy, you're you're trying to bring people along and you're trying to kind of whisper in ears and and just sort of, you know, you know in some ways I like to think of it as, as almost putting your ideas in someone else's mouth and, you know, surprise, surprise, all of a sudden they're talking about it, right? And uh, and then that's when real change starts to happen is when that idea becomes almost viral, but more and more folks are starting to talk about it and spread it around. Yeah, that's, a really, that's really interesting. You know, the idea that advocacy is, is sort of collaborative uh, as well as taking the long view, um, as opposed to maybe taking the short view of marketing uh, to sell a specific product by a specific time frame, you know? Um, it, it's just really interesting. It's, and I just wonder, you know, when you were still like, well, so when did you start with IMBA in Duluth? Uh, so I started with IMBA in 2004. And that was, and was that really your first sort of quote unquote professional advocacy role? Uh, yes. Yep. Yeah. Now you have me going back through my brain and trying to make sure that's true. <laughs> Right. <laughs> exactly. But, but I mean, it's funny. Well, I mean, that's actually, I'm wrong. 2008. So nine, 10, 11, 12. Yeah. 2008. Yeah. And it just, um, um, and, and, and what, you know, the, the reason I ask is it's just kind of a, I don't know, in my, in my, in my recollection of sort of your, your career arc, Imba really, I, I, I think sort of increased your, you know, your uh, awareness of what was going on in the region as well as created other people's awareness and your ability to help with that. And I mean, do you, do you see that that way that your role with Imba did both of those things? Yeah, I would say that's true. And you know, the, the interesting tie into industry in that regard is that, you know, I'd been a sales rep in this territory for quite a long time at that point, not only had I grown up here, but I, you know, kind of hit the, hit the, hit the road and, you know, had really, kind of met with all these different retailers and interacted in all these different communities. And so when, when Imba kind of came around and I was talking to Mike Van Abel, who was the kind of the, the ED at the time, and he described the region to me, I, I immediately was like, well, I know all those people, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right. I've driven to all those towns and I've ridden on those trails. And I, you know, I knew 
I knew enough to be dangerous as far as what I thought I knew. Um, but you're right. You know, once I once I was able to work with Emba, and now I was going and entering those communities in a, with a completely different view and a completely different mission. I was able to utilize a lot of the contacts that I had, but I was also opened up to an entirely new world and an entirely new population of people um, who weren't necessarily interacting in you know those retailers' spaces, but were definitely volunteering more and doing more around the trails themselves. So. Um, but the one thing that was interesting and it really started happening when I was working with Patagonia is again, was there was this really almost infuriating interaction. A lot of times, a lot of my, my regional retailers where I would get this pushback on, there is no adventure. There is nothing you can do in the Midwest. Like we have to go East or West to go do these cool things. And I found myself again, advocating a lot for local things like, Hey, have you ever paddled this river? Have you ever ridden this trail or have you been to the boundary waters or, you know, you name it. And so I felt like Imbo was an extension of that. I had to start proving to these people that even where they lived could be a special place. And, um, you know, we talk a lot about equity and access and, and other things around, you know, getting other types of people out, but there's also this weird stereotype of Midwest can't have fun. And, and it's a great a great example of that was like wow before we could even start to talk, to talk about how we could advocate for some of this great outdoor rec infrastructure we had to convince people that they could even do it in their own you know places here in the midwest right it's really interesting that you say that i mean i think that's something that you and i both very much agree on whether it's a in a single town out west or in the country as a whole uh, there is this idea that you have to be in the place where everybody else is. And, and it's kind of interesting. We can segue a little bit into the article that you wrote for Adventure Journal a couple of years ago on the broification of the outdoors and and really talking about the sort of media elitism of, of where is acceptable to go adventure. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of the things that was interesting about it is I think you were pointing out something that people really were starting to pay attention to but at the same time that the solution is really everybody finding adventure wherever they are and kind of looking around themselves and and it, you know it turns out there's some amazing stuff out there after the after that article came out in 2016 did you you know do you feel like that needle has moved at all or is it still kind of fixed in that same place yeah that's a really good question um you know, I do feel like the needle has moved in my own community and you kind of mentioned it earlier. It's like, I sometimes find myself looking, you know, out at, you know, geez, outdoor recreation as a whole and get frustrated, but then always come back to this place where it's like, well, what can I actually make a difference in and where can I actually create some change? And so Duluth specifically, and we, we have worked extremely hard to start to turn that corner. And uh, when I say that, when it's a big we and the fact that it, it's been a community wide effort with a lot of different partners and it's been extremely slow. Um, and I think that's a good thing, because I think if you're doing it extremely slow, what that means is you're building a lot of relationships to the communities and to the people and you know, the, the folks that aren't getting outside in our community. And um, but nationally, you know, I think it has changed. I've seen just more more going on with a lot of different organizations that are starting to get more kind of exposure and, and are, you know, obviously growing like, you know, outdoor Afro and, you know, big city mountaineers and just 
I'm seeing more of it in general. So I, I've seen a little bit of a change in some of the marketing materials themselves. Um, you know, picking up a, a general catalog from any quote outdoor brand and, and trying to see more diversity just within that. Um, I'm seeing a little bit, but I still see a lot of uh, a lot of the same stuff happening at the same time. So it's it's a slow change for sure. But um, I just try to keep myself upbeat and <laughs> work with the people here. And, and you know, I, I'm just seeing a lot of different, you know, a lot of different faces on our trails and more people are interested and more people are reaching out to do it. So I, I would say locally it's changing for sure. Yeah, there was, uh, I heard a... I heard a, a really interesting person. Uh, I can't remember her name. She was the the keynote speaker at the Shift Conference, and she was uh, she she was talking about you know if you look at if you look at your local trail network and the peop- the faces you're seeing on the trail don't match the demographics of your town or city, then you have a lot of work to do. Uh, and I thought that was yeah. that was a really interesting point. But let's go back to Duluth here for a second. Let's talk about what is going on in Duluth. So you are. Um, at the Minnesota Land Trust, right? And you're the outdoor recreation director for that? Or what is, what is, what's your role there? Yeah, so I work for the Minnesota Land Trust and I have this lengthy, heavy title called Director of Recreational Lands. Nice. And uh, yeah, which describes nothing of what I do, unfortunately. But um, technically what I work for the Land Trust, working you know, on the idea of engagement so, you know, the land trust is a, you know, I guess fairly typical land trust. It works a lot with private landowners on creating conservation easements and also working with both communities and the state of Minnesota and, you know, protecting outdoor spaces and, uh, you know, generally sensitive habitats and kind of, you know, a typical conservation organization. But we have a, a, our executive director is named Chris Larson. He's just a real out-of-the-box thinker and one thing that he's been grappling with for a long time is you know how do we start to also create more of a constituency around these places we're protecting because um if if you know what a conservation easement is it's it's uh, something that can be challenged legally by you know people down the line it's protected by one person but other people may not want to have that protection so by having a constituency to stand up for it you have not only a legal protection but you also have a social protection as well and um, so Duluth was our kind of our initial project. So we actually have a contract with the city of Duluth and kind of going back to that geology of Duluth because of that industry and that collapse, but also just the interesting, you know, kind of spatial, the way that Duluth is laid out. Um, we, had, we just randomly ended up with, you know, roughly 12,000 acres of undeveloped green space within our city limits. That's kind of all on this hillside and for a long time, that space was always seen as like a negative. If you talk to people back, you know, when I first moved up here in the 80s, they would just be like, oh, yeah, that's where all the factories were or where they're <laughs> going to be when they come back, you know, right. and, and uh, it just sort of sat there fallow. Meanwhile, people like myself and a lot of my friends started kind of utilizing it for what it was really good for, which was mountain biking and skiing and fishing and, you know, hiking and paddling. And, uh, as that kind of grew, that that was sort of the the you know almost inherent in the culture of the city, where it was just like those are parks, those aren't undeveloped green spaces. Well, it turns out they weren't protected at all, and uh, so there was really this you know kind of thought that hey, this is always going to be good until all of a sudden people started developing houses on it, and um, we had 
And early on when I was with Embo, we had a chance to create this mountain bike trail system called the Duluth Traverse that would actually go the length of the city. So it's a hundred mile interlinked single track system that hits to every borough and burg and you know neighborhood in town. And uh, it was a real success story on how we got that rolling. But what it really did was it it uh, it got our mayor at the time, Mayor Don Ness, really interested in how the public process was working and also how that green space was now all of a sudden seen as a value versus a negative. And so once he saw that, he just, he pulled me aside and started asking me questions on how we could take the mountain bike example and bring it to the skiers, the bikers, the paddlers, and the climbers and the horseback folks and, and start to use all this open space in a positive way through interlink trail systems and, you know, other amenities. And uh, that's when the Minnesota Land Trust was contracted. I, you know, took the job with the Land Trust just to be sort of outside of the city, just because I would have more creativity and flexibility. Um, and then in, in conjunction with that, the mayor actually kickstarted what he called the St. Louis River Corridor Initiative, which is kind of the, the stretch of the river where a lot of this open space was. And uh, with that, he actually created a an opportunity for us to engage the public in a, in a much bigger plan around the idea of outdoor recreation. And then also gave us a funding source as well by bonding for the money to, to actually invest in the recreation. And how much was that bond for? So we bonded for $18 million which is, you know, a major process. I mean, the public, it's so great to talk about something that's taken in the last four years and you can put it in a sentence, right? Right, exactly, yeah. <laughs> but the amount, the amount of work and public meetings, I mean, we're talking hundreds of public meetings and meetings in general around each activity. And, uh, you know, what we really did was we rolled it up into a kind of a big proposal that then went to the city council and the city council had to vote on it and once that was voted on, there was another vote on whether or not to have this bonding go through. So what it is is a half a percent tax uh, on food and beverage and also hotels. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so that that is what, you know, basically we took as in bonding, we took the money up front, 18 million, and then we're paying it back over time. And we've actually done that in another part of town in the 80s. And that was... Uh, you know, set for a certain amount of time and it was super successful. I mean, if you came to Duluth and you saw Canal Park, that was done by a bonding proposal similar to what we're talking about. And so it was actually just serendipitous that as that past bonding proposal was was finishing, this new one was coming up. And so people had already seen the success of it, but they also felt the pain of it as far as taxes were concerned. So it wasn't a big change for them. Um, so it was all voted on unanimously by the, well, the city council and, and the public, and it went through. So we got this $18 million, but the, I think the really interesting thing about it was the mayor actually just said, all right, well, you get 18, but you have to match it dollar for dollar. So what we really were going to do is get $36 million, and it really put kind of a, the you know skin of the game for these user groups that were partnering with a lot of these projects, so like the mountain bike club or the ski club or... Um, the climbing club on and on and on. So they could come up with a plan and an idea for a project, but they had to also realize they were on the hook for raising half of it. Got it. So back to the beginning of this process, I mean, the the, the land trust uh, and the city worked together to create a plan that was then put forward to ask for the money or were there, were there other groups and individuals involved in that planning process? 
Yes, there was a lot of other groups. So we, you know, initially when we were working with the mayor, we came up with a very high level, almost like concept. I wouldn't even call it a plan. It was more of a vision and just said, hey, you know, from our experience and, you know, the people we know, and I, you know, personally went and had, you know, kind of meetings with a lot of the different user groups themselves and got some information from them early on and said, here's what we think could happen. And um, when once the mayor had that, then he was able to start to kind of work down his, you know, uh, down his like road as far as policy was concerned. But then once we sort of had traction and, and the land trust was actually now being paid by the city to start working on this, what we started to do was actually go through a little mini master plan process for each project that had a public you know, component to it as well, which I think was like, it was super valuable. And to give you an example, um, one of the projects we worked on was this old abandoned quarry that's in the middle of the city. And uh, I mean, it's a, it's it's a classic quarry you know it, it's i think it has 120 foot walls nice. pretty much sheer yeah. but it's you know it's big and wide and uh it's just been an empty tax forfeit space for years the climbers have been climbing ice climbing in it specifically since the 1970s but completely illegally sure and uh but you know at the same time like a lot of the guys who are climbing in there are now in their 50s and 60s and they put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in developing all these roots and everything else in there. So I went to them and said, hey, what would you think about if we came up with a plan to formalize the quarry and actually you know, purchase the property and manage it as a climbing area and everything else? And at first, there was a little bit of angst around that, but eventually we got through that and uh, decided to go forward with the plan. Uh, the city accepted it as a potential plan, but wanted to put it out to the public. So we started having these public meetings and um, you know, it was so cool to see how the public process just made it, you know, it started out as a climbing park. And by the time we were done, I would just say it was a park. It was a park that had climbing. You know, we ended up adding uh, Frisbee golf to it, um, hiking trails. We put in a new, you know, accessible wheelchair, accessible ADA, accessible crushed gravel path into it. Um, and, uh, you know, the ice farming and ice climbing, you know, actual farming with like, Kind of like they're doing in URA with the you know the sprinklers and actually creating the climbs themselves. Sure. And uh, so it just became a real like community effort around it, and um, the neighborhood has really got behind it. And so you just realized you know it wasn't just climbers that were using the spot; it was dog walkers and people that were picking flowers and picnickers and you know all the the folks that got involved. So that public process really it took every project we had and made it better. And it certainly caused some compromise in, in some things, but that's all right. It was the, you know, the city's taxpayers money that were paying for it. So everyone needed to have a voice. So um, we did that for basically 24 projects. <laughs> wow. And yeah. so, and so wait, so talk to me about the timeline on all this. So, so, you did planning process for all 24 and all 24 of those were part of the bundle that, that you bonded for and now are being executed. Is that right? That's exactly right. So, um, so there's 24 projects, not all of them were my projects. I was personally involved in kind of five core projects. And then there's, um, some more, some of the money went to kind of more traditional parks and rec stuff as well. So like some ball fields and, you know, other, other types of stuff that was also just part of that community and that, and, and part of those neighborhoods, which I think was great. Um, so 
but yes, pretty much we went through each one of those projects and had public input on it. And now we're we're going through with that and and actually constructing it, going through the design, you know, design phases, the construction phases, and implementation. And and we're getting pretty close. I know on on the projects I'm most involved with, we're we're very close to kind of sealing the deal on all of them and actually having them done. Yeah. Um, but I, I will say, like, it's 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 such a there's so much work that goes into, as you know, there's so much work that goes into, you know, pushing for these things and getting them. But man, you realize really quickly that once you get the money, that's when it actually starts. <laughs> you mean like, the work? Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. Can't be too, you can't be too tired when you finally get the implement, implementation stuff going because that's when it really, the rubber really hits the road and the actual construction and, and spending of money, especially if it's grants and you know money that's got strings attached, um, right. you have a lot of lot of paperwork and a lot of things you gotta you know a lot of um, goals and deadlines you have to hit around it. And that um, lucky for us, the way that we've worked through it is we you know as the land trust was working with the city, we also were able to help them with the idea of, of who should be working within Parks and Rec and how they're hiring and the traits and the kind of the folks that would be good to have on staff to kind of steward and shepherd these things. And so the city really built a super, super strong parks department in in parallel with a lot of the work we're talking about, talking about. And so to have them on board and being so expert at this stuff now, you know, the, the way money moves through that process is so much more efficient and the city is so good at it that it's become easier over time. That's fantastic. I have have so many questions. Um, You know, one question I have, which is, I'm curious. So the Minnesota Land Trust, I mean, just at first glance, it it seems it seems like like what I would describe as a conservation based organization. And and I think the the deeper and the longer I go down this path, some sometimes I'm seeing some sort of natural uh, uh, natural skepticism between conservation organizations and outdoor recreation advocates. And I'm just, you know, I think what's really interesting about what's going on in Duluth is that the conservation organization is one of the avid proponents of it. And, I, and I'm just curious how, you know, what sort of advice you might have there, how you, um, I, I think it's it's great because you can advocate for outdoor recreation and still advocate for for pure conservation at the same time because it's all balanced but i'm just wondering if that's something that people are aware of or or if you have thoughts on that yeah definitely i mean that it's such a fine line that you tread and and you there is no easy answer there and it's like almost literally on a project by project you know property by property basis that you have these conversations but um, I mean, we've, you know, we are, we're, a, you know, I'm super impressed by the Minnesota Land Trust and, and what it's done for the state, let alone Duluth as a conservation organization. And it has a lot of accolades, you know, literally from, you know, the governor on down to the work that we've done and not just in, in what I work in, but in just these other conservation spaces. And even then, um, to your point, you know, there's been plenty of times where we found ourselves on, you know, with the guns pointed at us from the conserv- other conservation organizations, basically saying, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, and 
Um, again, like looking at Chris Larson, who's the executive director for the land trust, I mean, it's taken a lot of guts and courage for him to stand up for this stuff. But I think he's absolutely right. You know, if we're not, if we're not able to engage people to allow them to understand what it is we're conserving and why, then we don't have a leg to stand on in the future. And so recreation is such a great way, outdoor recreation specifically, is such a great way to get people into these spaces and do it in a managed and controlled way that allows them to understand the beauty and the importance of them. And, uh, you know, but I think compromise is key as well. And I think that's where you come back to that idea of advocacy and activism is uh, if you go in as an activist, there is no space for compromise. And so, you know, I think that falls on both sides, whether you're an outdoor recreationist or you're a, you know, a conservationist, there are just some places where people shouldn't be, (laughs) you know, you just have to, you just have to be aware of that. And there are some places where maybe there shouldn't be trails. um, And maybe there are some places where there should be trails. And so we use a lot of you know, here in Duluth on some of the projects that we've done, we really fell back on a lot of science and worked a lot with not only our local conservation groups, but also our, you know, we're lucky in the fact that we have not only a a Minnesota uh, pollution control agency office in town, we also have an EPA and environmental protection uh, agency office in town as well, with a lot of really great scientists in town. So we were able to get some real data on like, where is the real bird habitat? Where is the real you know, flora and fauna that's truly endangered in town and really be premeditative, you know, pre real think, think in advance and be intentional as to where these, you know, corridors would be and coming to that with, you know, a lot of knowledge and working with user groups and going down those roads, basically saying, well, it would be great to have a trail over there, but just so happens, you know, there's this crazy lichen <laughs> that, right. that is there. You know, if you come into it on the front end with that, and, you know, again, I think politically we're in a really great place in the fact that we were able to wrap our arms largely around these pieces of land and come at it with the mayor's help with this idea of a funding mechanism and able to say, hey, if we can do this, you can get the money for this, but you need to do it right. And uh, that changes how people's attitudes will be to work with you as well. That's a little long-winded, though. No, it's, it's great. And it's, it's not an easy answer, you know, and I, I do think that there's, you know, huge value in having some people involved in the process who've earned political capital by being consistent over the years. Right. And, and, I, yeah. and, and one of the things that seems to be, uh, you know, a, a point about this project is it's, it's a multi-activity project, right? So you're not just building a bike trail or, you know, just creating some some boat ramps. I mean, it's you're, you're doing a lot of different things for a lot of different people, which is, um, you know, that's a door opener and that that can potentially create that political capital. So when you do want to lock something up or you do want to put a, a trail extension someplace else that that that, that you have that trust there. Um, what What is where uh, where is Duluth in terms of how things are going in the rest of the state of Minnesota. I mean, is Duluth way ahead of the curve or is every place in Minnesota doing similar things or are there a couple other hot spots? What's what's the what's the deal there? Yeah, I'd kind of go with a couple other hot spots, you know, and, and that, you know, to be totally, you know, brutally honest, I mean the land trust would love to see a lot of the work we're doing now start to spread more statewide. And that that's always been our intention is to kind of use the, you know, Duluth as the model. 
and then start to move on. But I will say in that same breath that we have found that Duluth is such an odd place as far as some of these opportunities because of its past and its and its geography that it doesn't necessarily translate apples to apples to other places, which is a good you know a good a good uh, understanding to have. And it's more actually I, I you know I think listening to you and to um, the Vorak folks when I was out at the sort conference about your listening sessions. Like to me, that's, that's so right on, you know, each, each town's going to have its own little, it's going to have its own identity and its own, uh, own idea. So in that, in that regard, you know, we've had a couple other places, um, Cuyuna, Minnesota, uh, Crosby, Minnesota, it's actually um, is a little bit west of us here. And they were one of the projects I originally started kind of cut my teeth on with Imba which was another kind of mountain bike destination. They took a bunch of old um, iron mine pits and uh, actually they've, you know, they, they were done mining in those pits in like the fifties and they've since grown back. Like a lot of people that come and see those places now, they just think they're lakes with hills when, when they right. reality they're like 400 feet deep and they have, <laughs> you know, trees growing on overburden piles is basically what it is. But um, they put in some amazing mountain bike trails and that is totally totally changed that community and it's a uh, i guess you would probably i'm not sure what 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 town i would you know parallel it to in vermont but a small more of a small village than a town it's sure. probably like you know four or five thousand people sure um but i mean it's completely changed that place and you're seeing a lot of new businesses that are opening there and it's more you know it's more of a destination kind of almost more of a rural destination in a way versus duluth you know duluth is kind of odd, I think it's something to note as well, is that we we started out talking a lot about tourism and, and how what we're doing is going to bring more people to come and play in town. And, and we immediately realized that, that 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 argument isn't necessarily very strong for us. And that quality of life and, you know, kind of more kind of catering to our own citizens, both who want to stay here or want to move back here, was a much better play. Um, but when you look at Cayuna, theirs was the opposite. Like they were more kind of the classic tourism model. And because of that, you're starting to see, you know, the, the coffee shops and the bike shops and the, you know, the commerce and the retail around that starting to grow because of it, which I think is cool. And then we just actually just yesterday, this town, my hometown down in Winona, Minnesota, just released a, a proposed plan for a $23 million investment in their outdoor recreation around uh, mountain biking and paddling and uh, hiking and, and actually I think some bird watching some more like kind of, you know, eco-based kind of infrastructure, like tours and stuff like that. So, and paved trails. So that was a, that's been a, an eye opener. And it's, you know, Bemidji, Minnesota has certainly done a lot of stuff and uh, Grand Marais, Minnesota, which is up on the far North shore. So it's, it's been happening. Minneapolis, St. Paul is certainly getting, you know, a huge amount of accolades more around paved trails and, and kind of more transportation. I mean, they've been voted bike friendly, the most bike friendly city in, in America over Bend and Portland, you know, multiple times. So, sure. um, so it's happening in spotty ways, but I think the big question and, and uh, the thing that a lot of us are talking about now is how to make that more uniform and how to kind of roll out the, the benefits of what we've learned to as many communities as possible. When you talk about the benefits and, you know, one of the one of the primary talking points that everybody uses is that this is a largely an economic development initiative. And, you, you know, you said that, you know, it's it's more in Duluth about 
the people that are there and how do you retain them and how do you keep it a sort of healthy, viable place than people visiting. But at the same point, those numbers are key. I mean, did, did you guys use uh, specific data points or specific anecdotes as you were trying to push this all through? Yeah, I mean, we definitely took a lot of, you know, early on when I was working for Imba, there was a lot of, you know, data that we were kind of pushing around, around specifically around mountain bike and natural surface trails. That was really helpful kind of, you know, on the Duluth Traverse, the mountain bike trail side of it. And then as we got more in depth, you know, we, we started to reach out to more of the national organizations. I really feel like, you know, the, the access funds and the Imbas and the, um, you know, American rivers and all those types of organizations are so key to advocacy and, and pushing these kinds of agendas because they, they can give you that raw data and give you those, those kind of talking points, but they also have a, these precedents and these, you know, these, they've been through this before in other places, which is great. Um, but we also looked definitely at uh, like OIA had done some stuff with Ogden when it was first starting and had some other information kind of early on that we we're able to use, which really helped the, our, our early mayor, Don Ness, who kind of got on board and has still helped uh, our current mayor, Emily Larson, who's been, you know, she kind of took over the reins and has been super supportive. But uh, yeah, you know, and then there was other studies that we've seen around not just the economic development, but also just, you know, health and wellness and how it affects people's, you know, just day-to-day -day quality of life, which, you know, let's face it. We live in a, we live up in far northern Minnesota, and <laughs> winters are long. And there's no doubt, psychologically, if you have a reason to go outside, you're just that much happier. Yeah, there was a. I don't know if you saw the the, the Colorado health report that came out. I don't know. No, I'll send it to you a couple months ago, and it had some data points. You know that you know, ninety plus percent of our days are are either in a car or in front of a computer. You know, and um, you know, or something. You know, it, it was just some some jaw dropping statistics, and that's in a place with you know three hundred and sixty days of sun a year. So I mean, yeah, that, that's uh, you know, it's it's kind of sobering information. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I would agree that you know, there's there's a there's a ton of of national data out there. I also you know, it's funny. I'm I'm one of my big things is trying to find that new data point and one that goes beyond just the economic impact and how do we, how do we combine all those things, the economic and the health, you know, and the vibrant communities and all those things into some, some relatively, you know, straightforward metrics. And, and maybe that's a pipe dream. I don't know. Um, so another question I have for you is about, yeah. um, is about uh, the, the projects that, that are coming to fruition and, and how many of those are, you know, because they're taxpayer funded, you know, I, I imagine there's some pressure to keep them free to use, but, you know, user fees are a topic that continually comes up. And I'm just wondering if any, anything that's going on up there is, is tackling that head on. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, but I wanted to say one other thing about the data point though, before we leave that, sure. that's, you know, the, the kind of the talking points, the data points, the numbers, they're, they're super important. And I think you need to have those when you're, initially talking to people but i've found it it it's amazing how fast the need for numbers goes away when you can work and advocate with the people advocate with the people that you truly make the decisions and get them outside like <laughs> and actually have them experience what you're talking about and it might sound totally crazy and maybe even a little crass but man you know 
there's there's these gatekeepers at every level of every decision that's made and over time if you build the relationships with those folks and you actually start to take them outside it's it's crazy how they get into it and how they start to advocate for it themselves and how those talking points are certainly still needed and they'll, and they'll take them but man science and all that stuff goes away quickly <laughs> yeah that's a really that's a really that's a great talking point because it, it is interesting you know there's that sort of initial threshold when you explain to somebody, a, a decision maker, a elected official about outdoor recreation. And at a certain point, right, you see their brain start clicking on it because they get it. And they're, yeah. they're thinking about a specific trail or a specific waterway or whatever. And you can see it going. But but I would imagine getting them out on that trail or out on that water takes, you know, then, then you have complete cultural buy in. Right. Yeah. It's almost like I mean, it's so it's such a great parallel to sales. You know, like you can. You can talk about that binding you're selling until you're blue in the face, but until someone goes out and experiences it, if it's truly different, right? That's when they decide they're going to buy it, right? <laughs> right, totally, totally. So, so, but circling back to the question about paid access, yeah. uh, is there, are there, uh, how are you guys tackling that conversation? Um, so, you know, it's a great. We we have this conversation a lot, and so at this point, majority of what we're talking about to the general user is free. Um, but we actually, this new Nordic center that we just created is the first kind of fee for service facility that we've created. And, um, so that was the most expensive project in, at least in the suite of projects I was involved in. And I think, and the end price tag when it's all said and done will be, you know, roughly four some million dollars, which isn't huge. We've seen other Nordic centers put way, way, way more money into it, but for what we're doing, that's a big, that's a big price for us. And, um, sure. But it has snowmaking, it has lights, it, it, you know, it has true cost to run. And, you know, it's and certainly, uh, I, should, I should rephrase that. All the infrastructure that we have has costs to maintain and run, but it's almost more in your face when you're talking about, you know, an annual snowmaking bill on top of the infrastructure maintenance as well. And so there's a, there's a ticket fee. And um, that was a big topic of conversation early on in the projects, specifically with the city, and how we were going to allow and get folks that just can't afford it to go there. And uh, so we came up with a fee, you know, kind of like a, a fee structure that would accommodate those folks as well as like scholarship and, and um, you know, free opportunities for folks to come in and utilize that to kind of hopefully cover that. And that will be a work in progress, progress as we go forward. Um, but yeah, we, you know, as far as like just general access to trails, like mountain bike trails or to the climbing, like we've discussed like a citywide fee and, um, you know, different ways to do that. There is some legality and some interesting kind of liability issues with that in Minnesota. And, and it may be similar, I'm not sure in Vermont or other states, but if you have fee for service, then you kind of waive the whole recreational use statute, which is, hmm. um, basically says, you know, if, if you're doing this for free and it's open to the general public, um, then nobody, the, the landowner specifically is not liable. Right. Um, but once he's getting but money, once you start to charge. Yeah. <laughs> so, and there's, there's certainly ways around that, but then there's also the, you know, and it comes up a lot in a city of our size, which we're, you know, almost just around a hundred thousand folks is, um, just the idea of enforcement, you know? So it's like, right you know, are, are the police involved, you know, or are they, uh, how do we, how do we actually police that? And so the idea of kind of on your honor, kind of like the, you know, the, um, 
kingdom trails, you know, method where it's like, yeah, you buy a sticker, you throw it on and people just sort of self-police that's, that's been discussed. Um, but there, there needs to be a mechanism. There's no doubt to like keep flowing money into the maintenance and sustainability of, of the infrastructure. And so we're still trying to figure out how politically to kind of start tugging at those, you know, those ideas and, and move down the road. There are some places that have done some good jobs, like, um, uh, Marquette, Michigan, and the uh, No Cayman In Trail Network is actually a fee-for-service trail network, and they they do you know they sell passes for their skiing and for their mountain bike trails, and and uh, so it can be done. It's just how we can scale that up to a city our size and and make it relevant and and actually we do have like donation boxes at the trailheads, mm -hmm. and we do take donations at this point just on your honor. Do you, is there, a, you know, what, you know, you talked a little bit about Ogden and that OIA report, which is a great report and was really eye-opening when it came out. And, and one of the things I remember from it is it's, it talked about not just the importance of outdoor recreation assets, but the importance of some attention-getting events. Does, does Duluth or does this initiative also dovetail with specific outdoor events that are going on in the city? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, again, we're kind of going zero to 60. So it's like, you know, all of a sudden we have these, it's, you know, I guess Vermont and the East Coast is probably similar to, to the Midwest in this regard as well as that we're not the West, we don't have just like these vast amounts of, you know, public lands that people can just sort of go off and explore and experience to, right. um, you know, a trail. So it's like, we actually create our experience and our infrastructure and it's intentionally created. And so before that, we didn't really have that opportunity. And so now we do because we've created a, you know, a mountain bike facility and we've created a Nordic ski facility and a climbing park. And um, so we're starting to kind of populate those spaces with different events. And one, one that's kind of grown very quickly is we also in town have a, a kind of a, you know, for, for the Midwest, it's actually a fairly good size ski hill for the rest of the world. It's pretty small, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a ski hill. It's got a high speed quad and, and, um, you know, actually has three or four lift three or four different lifts, but it's great because in the summer it's, it's it, for a while it was the only lift surf mountain bike park in, in the whole center of the country. Wow. And, uh, with that, with a thousand vert and, you know, 20, 24 different trails, um, it's awesome. You know, like, I mean, it's funny how a Midwest ski hill is too small for skiing, but for mountain biking, it's actually it's, just perfect. Yeah. It's, it's, um, yeah. Especially, yeah. Especially the high speed quad where you can, you know, you can get up and down it really quickly. Um, but we also built uh, kind of a cool, we call it the all weather trail, but basically it's a raised tread uh, gravel surfaced mountain bike trail that rings the whole outside of it that can be ridden regardless of weather. So, you know, we, we have pretty high clay based soils. So there, there can be times when you come to town and you just don't want to ride cause it's just too mucky. And uh, so this trail can be ridden regardless by the tourists if it is bad, but we also stage um, a Nika, you know, the high school race, yeah. like race league race there, which gets a thousand kids uh, for one single weekend. And then um, we also put on this bike Duluth uh, event, which is kind of a, it's got an enduro series, a downhill race and a cross country race. And, uh, that's been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We're, we've watched pretty explosive growth around that. Um, and then, you know, the other, like the, we have a climbing festival and it's, it's small, but growing. And, um, so it's, you know, it's, it's just starting to happen, but it, um, it's interesting how being in a city 
events can be a much different animal versus somewhere like Cayuna that I talked about where it is, um, you know, it's a more of a, a small destination where they can kind of, they can kind of, kind of rope the whole town into what's going on. Versus, right. um, we've had a few, we've had a few promoters come to town and want to race the length of the Duluth Traverse, which is, you know, east to west, the length of the city. And you have to explain to them, it's like, well, you, you know, there's, probably like 17 or 18 major roads you're going to have to close, <laughs> you know, like right. uh, it's a much different animal, but we also we're we're so we're kind of conveniently located by all these other really great major events, which has been really interesting. We're the airport. So people will fly in to us, they'll ride or do whatever they're going to do here. And then they go off to the Berkey, which is just, you know, an hour down the road or right. on the Schwamigan Fat Tower Festival or, um, the Lutsa 99er, which is a big race up uh, up the shore. So we've, we're kind of kind of banking off some of the other events as well. Are, are you seeing just sort of, um, I mean, this is purely anecdotal and um, question, but are you seeing local businesses that are not outdoor recreation, quote unquote, businesses start to change their marketing and storytelling to start weaving, you know, this type of stuff into it? Yes, for sure. And, and not not small players, big players. Like um, we have a aircraft manufacturer in town called Cirrus, which makes the they make the, uh, the airplane that has the parachute drop out of the tail. Have you ever seen that thing? No, but I'll Google it later. It's, yeah, yeah, you should. It's really cool. <laughs> and, um, um, so anyway, they're you know they're they're a huge company, and uh, they actually started putting billboards up, kind of promoting the idea of you know living and working in Duluth and the outdoor recreation amenities because of that. Um, the, the, you know, the big hospitals in town have definitely gotten on board. Um, there's like two or three new billboards just this week that are all kind of promoting winter play and some of the stuff that we're doing. Um, so yeah, a major change. And then, you know, a lot of small businesses that are popping up specifically around it. Uh, we've had like three different tour companies that have kind of popped up to kind of start promoting, you know, riding on the trail systems and both winter and summer. And then obviously there's been great growth with the, uh, you know, we have uh, the ski hut's been a huge supporter of ours in town. That was, you know, kind of one of the early adopter uh, ski shops and mountain bike bike shops in town. They've, they've just watched, you know, their bike sales go through the roof and um, continental, which is uh, another continental ski and bike is another shop in town that's really gotten on board. And, and, um, so we're watching all those stores really, you know, really grow quickly and, and get on, on board as well. I mean, it's another, it's another whole conversation, but I really feel like mountain biking is having a moment right now. It's, it just seems like everywhere I go, I see more bikes and more trails and it's, it's remarkable. Um, well, what is, so here's a question. I like where you're standing right now and looking back, um, I mean, it took a ton of work to get here, but you know, if you're projecting forward, what's, what, what's next? What's the, I mean, obviously you were talking about, you know, you're executing and you're putting this stuff in the ground, but at the same point as an advocate, you're, I know you, you're thinking long-term and your group is and the land trust. What's, what's, what's the next big horizon? Yeah. I mean, for Duluth specifically, I think it's, you know, if I think of it as, you know, you kind of built, we built the, we came up with the idea. We we kind of built the infrastructure, and now it's really truly starting to make sure that that infrastructure is utilized by all the people in in the city. Yeah. And um and I mean that, you know, like 
the programmatically starting to think about more how we can start to actually start doing the messaging and the communication and the outreach and all the things we can do to to truly get you know the general community to start using it and there's a lot as you know as a public relations person like there's so it's it's easy to speak to the people that are involved. So like the, the mountain bikers, you know, they have a club that has 700 members. And so we can immediately, you know, speak to a large group of the people that are on the trails, but how do we, how do we hit those people in between that aren't into these communication networks? Yeah. Um, you know, both people who may not be able to afford it, obviously people of color and um, people who may not culturally understand it, but then also just the general person, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, um, it's amazing, you know. I, I just on Facebook a couple months ago, I, I had a, a good friend of mine who's an artist in town, who uh, was out walking her dog on one of the newly built mountain bike trails, and a mountain biker went by, or like in her opinion, too fast, which he he probably did. And uh, she put this rant on Facebook about like, what was this mountain biker doing on my trail? You know. Right. <laughs> and, and it was like I had thought thought about it. It's like, well, she would have no reason to know right that that trail was actually built by mountain bikers and you know like so or it would be fun know, think, yeah exactly yeah so like that public relations side and and like how we start to message to the community and and i think start to really start to make it part of the culture even more so i mean it's been part of the culture for a certain segment of our population as to why you live in duluth you like to be outside but how do we put that into the like the dna of everyone in town it's a really um, it's a really good question and one that is on my brain a lot you know I, I really feel like a completed trail network or, or 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 any sort of completed recreation resource is sort of the last mile of the whole thing you know whereas you know when you're talking about getting the the whole community there that's the first mile and you know yeah. that's a whole nother ball of wax I, I think you know and and I think that you know back to sort of that idea the broification the outdoors there's that yeah. big bro divide, like for those for those people who've never put on a pair of, you know, wouldn't even know a clipless pedal from, you know, a click, a, you know, a, a telemark binding, you know, just to get them outside it, it is a, you know, you got to go to them, unfortunately. Um, but I think that that's really sort of the next phase of this is how do we how do we how do we do that first mile initiative so that they can get to the last mile? Um, yeah, it's, I think it's that's a lot so right. You know, when I when I wrote that provocation thing, I think it's it's also important to remember when it was written. You know, we were yeah. like right in the middle of our struggle yeah. as far as what we're doing in Duluth, and I was just getting pounded by <laughs> these politicians in town who were who were they were throwing the bro thing at me as a negative. Like they were they weren't people who went outside. A lot of them do now, which is great, but at that point they were like. Uh, you know, this is just a bunch of rich white dudes that, you know, or just want this for themselves. I mean, you, you know, throw every cliche you've heard out there. Right. Right. And um, not only was I getting it personally, but I was like literally struggling just to make all this stuff, you know, with other people. I, I don't want to sound like I was the only one doing it, but we were struggling hard to do this. And I was getting so frustrated. And then I would, I actually went to uh, a soap conference, uh, another one, the one that was in, uh, I can't remember what, what the heck was it. Um, I was in Boise, Idaho, and and I saw a speaker there who like basically 
just personified what I was dealing with. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. And I just like, I was like, oh, damn it. You know, they're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, fight this. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's that whole idea of, you know, when you start talking about just outdoor recreation and you don't specify that it's multi-use and, you know, equity-based and, and all this other stuff, people's brains could go anywhere. And, and they, you know, they, yeah. it might go to the best case scenario and it might go to the worst case scenario. And, um, you know, but to your point, like if you get them outside and get them to be a part of it and they start seeing that, you know, you don't you don't have to shave your legs to do this trail. You know, you don't have to, yeah. you know, you don't have to wear neon if you don't want to. Um, but it is it is tough out there sometimes. Yeah. And I just, you know, there's been a definite shift. Right. I mean, again, you know, seeing. You know, even outdoor retailer from when I was a kid, you know, literally as a kid, you know, yeah. to to where it is now or um, advertising. I mean, or even racing or just general like like I I can vividly remember going to the national canoe championships in the in the early 80s and basically like seeing people racing in teens with no shirt on. You know, like, yeah, perfect. These are the, like these are the winning people, right? Like, <laughs> the people that go after it. Yeah. And, I mean, now there wouldn't be a person caught dead in a pair of jeans in any activity. In fact, we, you know, Jerry the day, we, we like, we like to point them out and ridicule them, right? I hate you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, and, and I, I think there is, you know, it's funny. Like we could talk about the, the fact that a lot of us in the outdoor world have a good self-deprecating sense of humor. And we, you know, we recognize yeah. when we're being ridiculous too, but, but it, it is a, it's intimidating, especially if, you know, one of those first mile people, all they see are super fit, super white, super rich people in all the media. They may not think it's for them, you know, and, um, yeah. you know, and, and, I, and I think that that's a that's a challenge that we all have to kind of we all have to figure out. And uh, but it's but it's yeah, it's good. It's good work if you can get it right, Hansi. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. I, I think uh, I think I've wasted enough of your time here, but uh, but thanks. I really appreciate it, and um, you know, um, yeah. I hope I hope I hope you had fun. Yeah, for sure. I love. Yeah, it's great to talk about it. It's you know that's been the one the one thing that I've uh, my boss actually we we're down to basically the last eight months of my contract, you know, it was originally going to be three years and we went four over four. And, uh, so we had a meeting with the mayor yesterday just talking about kind of like the end game, you know, like what's, what's, what's what are we going to do for the last eight months to kind of close this thing out? And, and, uh, one thing I kind of commented on was I've been so in the weeds in Duluth that in the past, whether I was in, you know, repping or in the outdoor work, I would go to OR or to interact with all these different people. And, uh, you know, I go to a couple conferences now, but with Imba, I would go to many and it was like, we got to start going back out again, Yeah, <laughs> you know, cause like we got to start seeing what else is going on. You get in your own little isolated test tube here. And it's like, great to talk with people like yourself and like have these back and forth and, and start to learn more what's going on in other places, but also just talk through it both, you know, logistically and intellectually yeah. <laughs> like why are you doing what you're doing you know because it's hard i mean there's a lot of moving parts and you know you know that said i was having a conversation with uh, uh, a, a client just yesterday about grassroots organization and local communities and how how it seems to be bubbling up in all these places because because everybody loves it 
<laughs> you know, like the outdoor yeah. outdoor industry and outdoor recreation people, you get a bunch of them in a room for more than an hour, they're going to find some common ground and want to make progress. Let's just, it's just, yeah. a, it's a weird DNA dynamic. And, um, but it's, I, I think it's really positive and I, and I love the fact that it's happening in Duluth and Chattanooga and, you know, North Carolina, and, you know, yeah. all, all over the place. But, um, once again, thanks Thanks a ton for your time, and um, you know, I will uh, I will let you know as soon as this is live. Once I once I get my editing dialed in. Right on, man. Well, good luck with that, and have a great rest of your winter. Yeah, I'll see it. I might be at OR. Maybe I'll see it at OR. Yeah, I'll look. For, yeah, if you're there, let me know. We'll we'll we'll, we'll grab a beer. Outdoor States is a production of Pale Morning Media. Theme music by Chicky Stoltz. Check him out on iTunes.